0: A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com.
1: Hey, Intercepted listeners, it is Jeremy. We are really excited to share with you two episodes of the gripping new podcast series from The Intercept and Topic Studios. It's called Murderville an investigation by Intercept reporters Jordan Smith and Liliana Segura. Here is episode two.
0: On the website of the Georgia Bureau of Investigation, the GBI, is a gruesome tab. Unsolved homicides. It's five pages long, 50 names total. Lives cut off and reduced to a paragraph or two. More police blotter than tabloid.
2: Lanisha Crowder, a 21-year-old single mom Murdered at home 18 years ago. Mary Susan Humphrey, air traffic controller. She died after leaving a nightclub in Valdosta back in 1980. And then there's a man known only as Roy. He died sometime between 1975 and 1979, maybe in Georgia. Or maybe in Alabama, Florida, Louisiana, Mississippi, or Texas. There's a number to call if you have more information. Some of the entries
0: include pictures of the victims. Old-school photos, outdated haircuts, lots of blurry snapshots. Family and friends cropped out to frame the victim. On about half of them,
2: there's no picture at all. Just a little white box with a gray N-slash-A where the face should be. One of those belongs to a man named Salish Patel, murdered Friday, April 7, 2000, in Adel, Georgia, at a house just blocks from the small convenience store where he was working. Tim Balch is a former police officer from Adel, and he remembers when Patel was killed because it was the second gruesome murder in less than two years in this town of just 5,000 people.
3: That store is literally like a block. In, in fact, you can see the front end of it from here. That where those gas pumps are down there is where that, that happened, yeah. He was found dead um, three streets behind us on Gordon Street.
0: What do you remember about that case? What can you tell us about that?
3: That was probably one of the most savage murders The fight was throughout the house, and I think that the coup d'etat, as you could say, that the final deal was when the television went over his head. I mean, there was fighting and stabbing, and it was a very bloody crime scene.
2: I mean, it seems amazing to me that that didn't get solved. It seems like there'd be a lot of good potential evidence there. It's so violent. I just wonder if you just have ever thought about what actually might have occurred and
3: why. It it was just a very strange place for a murder to take place in in, because it it wasn't one of those areas that you would even expect, um, you know, family fighting to take place. It, It was a pretty good area. We've rarely got calls over there.
0: We've talked about how wrongful convictions leave the real killer free. Well, Salish Patel was murdered barely a year and a half after Donna Brown. And we're sure the GBI pegged the wrong man, Devanya Inman, for that crime. We can't say that there's a connection between the murder of Donna Brown and the murder of Salish Patel. We can say that there was talk around town that there might have been. But we don't know if the Adel Police or the GBI ever considered that. What we do know is that Patel's death was grisly, left his family devastated, and the town shocked. Again. And that nearly 20 years later, his killer has never been identified. From The Intercept, I'm Liliana Sakura, And I'm
2: Jordan Smith. This is Murderville, Georgia. Salish Patel was murdered in April 2000, after Devanya Inman was jailed for Donna Brown's murder, but well before he would go to trial. That's a lot of time. And if the wrong man's in jail, it's a lot of time for the right man, the real killer, to plot his next crime. So could Patel's killer be the real culprit behind Donna Brown's murder? And if so, then why wasn't that person caught? And why was Devanya Inman pegged for the crime? We're going to try to figure that out. But first, we need to understand what happened with the Donna Brown case and Devanya Inman's conviction and how Devanya went from a kid getting in trouble in California to an adult facing murder charges in South Georgia.
0: Hi. Hi. Dinah. How are you? I'm good. How are you? you Nice to meet you. Nice to meet you. This is the house in California where Devanya Inman lived when he was a teenager. White, single-story home, green trim. It's in a suburb in South Sacramento, not far from the freeway. He moved there with his parents, Dinah and David Ray, when he was about 15 or 16, from a house just a few miles away. The family wanted to settle down in a better neighborhood. Outside, there's a basketball hoop over the two-car garage. Inside, a stone fireplace with family photos on the mantle. Dinah had collected all the photos she could find of her son over the years. Inman as a toddler, reading with his sister. Inman as a teenager, with an earring and a sideways cap. He has a dimple when he smiles. Dinah also had letters and a poem he had sent from prison earlier that year. His parents were really proud of it. He wrote it for a poetry contest and won, they said. It was called The History of Being Black. Here's David reading from the poem. A dream
4: then I would foresee a race of color that needs to perfect itself. For in the days lost to gangs, greed and selfishness
2: Inman grew up here As in I California, strive, but his family's
5: roots were in Adel. To I was born and raised in Adel, and my family lives in Adel. All of my family, my parents, um, My dad's dad, he dead now, but at that time, my parents, all my siblings are back in Adel. I enjoyed growing up in Adel. It was a country, you know, quiet, slow. I thought Adel was a great place to grow up in as a child. Devanya
2: Inman was born there too, in the same house where Dinah grew up. He was born on the couch and he was still
5: a baby when they moved to California. actually left Adele when he was about two, three months old. Um, I was married to his dad, and he was military. So we went to Oklahoma and then wound up out here in Sacramento where his dad and I divorced.
2: Dinah and David Ray have been married for three decades now. David raised Inman since he was a toddler, like he was his own son. Inman doesn't call David his stepfather. He's his dad, period. Inman
5: was the oldest of four kids. He was a good son. He's a caring and loving person. He loved people. He liked to dress up as a kid. His dad was in the military, so he liked to dress up in military clothing and wear them around the house. Uh, He liked tearing things apart and putting them back together.
0: What kinds of things did he like to take apart and put back together? What was his sort of... <laughs> he would take his toys
5: apart, um, he like to a stereo cars. or a, uh, that scooter. He loved to see how something worked, I
2: guess. But things started to change in high school when he started running with the wrong crowd.
5: The trouble here, I, my son, I think the only thing here that he was guilty of was really choosing... Wrong friends. Certainly, he he can't control what his friends do, which is one of the reasons I sent him back to my family in the country so that he could, you know, maybe not get in trouble.
0: How old was he when when you were starting to be a little concerned like that?
5: Uh, He was a teenager. He was about um, 14, 15? 15 or
0: 16.
2: We've said it before, and we're gonna say it again. Just because somebody is wrongfully convicted doesn't mean they're an angel. Sometimes they're even a bit of a dick. But that doesn't mean they should spend the rest of their life in prison, especially for something they didn't do.
0: Devania Inman certainly has some good qualities. His parents clearly love him, and he loves his son. And that thing where he used to like to take things apart and put them back together, maybe he could have done something with that. He had just turned 20 when he was arrested for Donna Brown's murder. That said, he definitely has a dark side. Inman's police records from Sacramento are hard to piece together. The GBI requested them just weeks after he was arrested in Adel for Donna Brown's murder. Pages are scattered throughout the GBI report, which is almost 1,000 pages long. What's clear is that he started to get in trouble early. There are disciplinary reports from two separate high schools, then a couple of arrests, armed robbery, attempted robbery, and car theft. But the main thing... He seems to have had a real problem with violence against women. That started early too, apparently part of a cycle. His biological dad had been abusive toward his mom. He was only 16 the first time he got in trouble
2: for it. There's a girl he'd been dating for just two weeks who accused him of choking her and threatening to kill her. Then, a few years later, he was living with another girl. Her family filed a bunch of complaints against him, saying he beat her up all the time and that he'd been threatening the whole family. Police arrested Inman a couple times. He spent several months in jail and a few years on probation. In the summer of 1998, on the eve of his 20th birthday, he seemed bound for more trouble. So his mother decided to do what mothers have done for decades when their kids need shaping up. She sent him to stay with Grandma, far away. It was one of those times when you do what you think is the right thing, and it turns out to be the wrong thing.
0: Very wrong. Inman was no stranger to Adel. He and his siblings had been going there from the time he was little. Dinah would take them during holidays and school vacations. They would stay for two weeks. During one of those visits, in 1995, he got a girl pregnant. She was known around town as Pebbles. Later, when Inman was back in Adel for Christmas, he went to see Pebbles. She was still pregnant and in the hospital, but she didn't want him there. He got angry. Inman was charged with making a terroristic threat after insisting to see her. He was put on probation, but he quickly broke it by returning to California. That probation violation would come back to haunt him. The DA who charged him in that case, his name was Bob Ellis. He's the same DA who would later charge Inman with murder. By the summer of 1998, Inman was 19, and his parents didn't know what to do. They brought him to a family reunion in Mobile, Alabama, And instead of bringing him back to Sacramento with them, Dinah and David put him in a car with his aunt and uncle and sent him to Adel.
5: I just didn't want him to get in anything serious or in behind for pressure. I thought I was protecting him by sending him to Adel in the country. That wasn't the case.
0: Maybe you can tell me a little bit more about um, when when you decided to send him to Adel and and how he reacted.
5: He didn't really want to. My kids are really very close, and I'm really close to my kids, maybe because I'm so far away from my family. Uh, He didn't really want to stay there, but I thought if he could stay a school year or something, and I would come back to get him, you know, after school year or to see if he liked it. Maybe he could finish school.
4: It was a very hard decision. I mean, it was. he didn't want to stay, and, and my didn't wife didn't want him, him to leave him, I and know. she cried the whole yeah. ride back. But we thought we was having him in a better environment.
0: And that
5: was the worst
0: mistake. Do you regret having sent him to Adel?
5: Every day. Every day of my life. It was the worst thing I could have ever done. It destroyed our lives. It destroyed his life. And I had to blame myself for that.
0: Inman arrived in Adel in late July 1998.
4: He was angry. I didn't want to be there.
6: I didn't want to stay with my grandma at the time. I didn't want to stay at my back. I just wanted to leave that town. It just there wasn't nothing
1: there so just... A whole bunch of chaos and trouble.
0: The hope his parents had that he might finish school, that wasn't happening. Instead, he was getting into fights, making threats, and getting in trouble with police. In September, just a few days before the murder at Taco Bell, Inman was accused of pointing a gun at Zach Payne. That's the same weird, rambling, drug-dealing Zach Payne who knew nothing about the death of Donna Brown, but told police anyway that Inman was capable of killing her. Two days after the murder, police arrested Inman for violating the terms of his probation from that fight at the hospital back in 1995. It was the perfect excuse to keep him locked up while they collected more evidence against him. They'd leave him in jail until they were ready to charge him with murder. We've talked about Adele
2: before. Here's the Adele music again. The short version... Small town in southern Georgia, sharply divided by race, with a long racist history. And like in so many places, that racist history finds a home in policing. Good stats are hard to come by, but there are plenty of anecdotes. Like the time in 1982, when Adel made national news, two white cops fired their guns into a moving car with four black kids inside. They said the kids were speeding. After the officers shot at them, their car flipped over the NAACP called for the cops to be fired. And if you ask folks like Devonia Inman's aunt and uncle, they'll tell you they don't need statistics to prove that the town is racist. They've lived here their whole lives, and they see it every day. We went to meet the aunt and uncle, Ethel and Ben Pickett, at a buffet restaurant in Adel, the Western Sizzlin'. It's right next door to the Taco Bell, where Donna Brown was murdered. It's a popular spot. During Inman's
0: trial, jurors ate lunch there. Ethel told us that Adel's always been a tough place to be a young black man.
4: When a black child graduated from high school, they went to the Army. They got out of Adel. Mm-hmm. They got they went to Atlanta. They went to Detroit somewhere. You know what I'm saying? They got out of Cook County. Because if they hadn't got out of Cook County, they was going to jail. They was going to prison. When you're out there on the streets, whether you're doing something or whether you're not, you was going to jail. And if you resist it, you got... The consequences. It was a privilege for a black man to graduate back in the day and get out of ADL. Parents, when they, you know, Jay Child got of age, that was their main thing to get
0: them gone. She says the racism is a little more subtle today, but she's still convinced that racism was behind her nephew's arrest and conviction. It's hard to prove that, and at least at the beginning, it was Inman's behavior that got him onto the radar of the ADL PD. Part of that was due to his relationship with Christy Lima, the girlfriend he was with at the time Donna Brown was killed. He met her soon after moving to Adel. The cops had been called to her house after he and Lima got into a couple of fights. Now, she says she was the abusive one, that Inman just played tough.
7: He used to wear the bandanas, you know, because he was from California, like, you know, gangster thugs. But Devanya is a sweetheart. You know, he wasn't a fighter. It never was nothing, him being like, he was just crazy about me. We were young. We would fight. And, and more me, I've always been like the type of abusive person. you' probably hit me once, hitting me back for hitting him.
0: In the months before Donna Brown's murder, Inman wasn't really doing much. He didn't have a job, and he wasn't going to school. He was mostly hanging out with Lima, or with his grandmother, or his Aunt Ethel, or one of his many cousins. He smoked pot and drank beer, and he visited his son, who was just a toddler. The last time he saw him was the day Donna Brown was murdered. While Inman was in jail waiting
2: for his trial to start, he got moved around to different facilities. It's not clear why. Neither the GBI nor the ALPD would tell us. But his family thinks it was to keep them from seeing him. Meanwhile, the prosecutor kept plugging away, even as the case seemed to be falling apart. The murder weapon never materialized. Inman's prints did not match those lifted from Donna Brown's car. Witnesses were starting to recant their statements. And another two were sticking to totally
1: fishy stories about Immens involvement. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince has the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more.
8: Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started.
0: The Fishiest? The story told by a woman named Virginia Tatum. She's the newspaper carrier who claimed to hear a gunshot over six lanes of interstate traffic and then said that she saw Inman speeding away from the Taco Bell. But remember, she didn't come forward until weeks later, after a $5,000 reward for information about the crime had been posted. She eventually collected that cash.
6: We were waiting for the papers. They were late sometimes. And uh, we were standing kind of to the side of the place where we picked up the papers.
0: Lee Grimes was another newspaper carrier. He was with Tatum, waiting for the papers to be delivered. The night that Donna Brown died, he says nothing unusual happened that night.
6: A dark car with some black people rode by, and, and we were talking about the crime that had occurred that month. And she was telling me, you know, there's a five thousand dollar reward for that. It sure would be nice to get that reward. Blah blah blah, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And this car rode by. You know, those people out right there, they could have committed that crime, or they might have committed that crime, and they rode on down the street. And that's my memory of that. Uh, of quote the crime it was a month or so after the crime and there was a reward which she was virginia was always into whatever she could do to make some extra money and that kind of thing that's basically the story also at the time that corner was pretty dark there would be no way i or anybody else could pick out a a black person in a dark car could pick up the subscription she picked out of that she said she saw i mean it's just impossible
0: Grimes says he confronted Tatum about it, years later, when he saw her at a bank. He asked how she was sleeping at night. She wouldn't answer him. We wanted to talk to Tatum, so we went to her house. She was not interested, she told us, through a crack in her front door. She told us not to come back. Inman's aunt and uncle think the police and GBI knew he didn't do it, but decided to pin the murder on him because he was an easy target, because he was black, and the cops thought he was a pain in the ass. He had smarted off at
4: a couple of the police officers they had saw him, and he had smarted off at him, and then when he had it out with the girl and went up there, he was getting smart with him, you know, and he was telling Jimmy, you know. Jimmy Hill,
0: the investigator from the Adel Police Department.
4: He called him all kind of names and stuff, and he was saying, you know, they, he knew his rights. He, they couldn't do this, they couldn't do that to him, and it made him mad. Jimmy Hill was like, you know, I heard he say that he was coming here using three or four different aliases, thinking he all bad and this and that. He ain't getting out of here. He won't never uh, see the daylight of dawn right here in this jail.
5: So wait. So, that
4: the word that the detectives, Jimmy Jimmy Hill, said. So
2: it's, Jimmy Hill basically didn't like that Devonia was smarting off to him and said he would never get out of jail.
4: Right. And, he, and then he didn't. No, he didn't. They just focused on him because basically they was gonna get somebody black for killing that lady. And I knew that. The whole time I knew this I said, well everybody better know where they was and have a witness, an alibi for what happened, because they're going to pin that murder on somebody Black.
2: Again, that's hard to prove. What should have been easier to see was that the police had the wrong guy. But it seemed no one wanted to see that. Instead, prosecutors aggressively ignored all the red flags that were turning up before the trial. One of the craziest ones? Just months before Inman's trial began, Larisha Chapman sent a letter to Inman's attorneys. She's one of the teens working with Donna Brown the night she was killed. The one who first told investigators she saw nothing weird at the Taco Bell that night, but then implicated Inman, saying she heard his voice coming from the weeds by the parking lot. Now, in her letter, she confessed that the GBI had pressured her to say that, and that they fed her details of the crime. She was just 16 at the time. No adults were present when she was questioned. Inman's lawyers gave prosecutors the letter, but the prosecutors kept moving towards trial anyway. The trial began in Adel in June 2001, more than two and a half years after Donna Brown was killed. It's hard to find impartial jurors in a community as small as Adel, especially when the crime was as awful as this one was. The county called hundreds of potential jurors and eventually whittled it down to 15.
0: Nice Stephen, to, meet good you. to meet you. All right. Oh, is hey, I'm yeah. Jordan. Nice Not to meet good to you. Meet you. Jordan. This, this is Liliana. Liliana. Nice to
1: meet Jesse you. Jordan and
2: We met one of them, Stephen King, at his house near Adel. King was appealing because at the time of the murder, he had been away from town for six years serving in the Army. Today he's a mail carrier. The jury was sequestered, also unusual for Cook County.
1: They would take us back and forth from the motel to the courthouse to lunch, back to the motel to supper in a little yellow school bus. They did let us swim, but they would ask the other guests to... Can the jury have the pool for an hour or so? And we went to, in the evenings. Uh, yeah, it was uh, it was an experience.
2: The trial was a big deal, the first capital case in a generation. Inman's parents, Dinah and David Ray, were there from California, but they say they weren't allowed into the courtroom for most of the trial. They were told they might have to testify, and in the end, they did. After their son was convicted, they had to beg jurors to spare his life. Family of the victim, Donna Brown, was there too. So were other curious people from around town.
0: A reporter for the local paper took notes. There are no recordings of the trial, only the transcripts. But when we first read through them, it became pretty clear that, like the investigation into the crime, the trial was a total shitshow. The evidence was thin, so prosecutors did everything they could to make Inman seem scary and menacing. More than a dozen local cops were sworn in as bailiffs to act as court security. A normal case might have three. It seemed like a brazen attempt to make the jury believe that Inman was a very dangerous man, before even a single witness had testified. Another thing? They kept calling Inman by, like, four different aliases, which certainly made him seem sketchy, but they weren't names he actually used. Then there was the bizarre and, frankly, racist courtroom drama. Halfway through the trial, one juror, a black man, was removed after he admitted he'd had sex with one of the witnesses, a black woman. A second juror, a white man, also had sex with a witness, at least according to her. That juror denied it. So the judge let him stay. Tim Edson, one of the prosecutors, gave the opening statement. Edson wears glasses, he has a receding hairline, and an easy smile. He has a lyrical southern accent and a resonating voice. There really was no physical evidence, he acknowledged to the jury. But the reason for that, he said, was that Inman had plotted out the crime so well. Edson later ran into trouble
2: with the law himself. There was an indictment on federal corruption charges for a drug case involving his wife. He later became a public defender and then was sued by a civil rights group that said he had provided inadequate defense to indigent clients. And then there was elected district attorney Bob Ellis. He ran into legal trouble too, and he was also indicted in a federal case for sexual misconduct with a confidential drug informant. She accused him of rape, but he denied it. He later became a boat salesman and part-time Baptist preacher. The prosecutors brought in a parade of witnesses from California to talk about Immen's criminal past, including crimes he committed as a juvenile. Not the domestic violence, but the other stuff. Prosecutors said these petty crimes, which they called similar transactions— showed that Iman was a bad egg, indications that he would ultimately become a murderer. Erling Goodman, who worked on the defense team, told us that was one of Tim Edson's signature moves. Tim was the king of kings of similar transactions.
7: I never understood how that little penny-ante stuff in California was a similar transaction to this. But, like I said, you know Tim was the king of similar transactions. Mm-hmm. I don't know how in the world, but
2: he he was. For what it's worth, Edson's similar transactions didn't exactly impress juror Stephen King.
1: I don't know why they brought all the guys in from, from California. To me, that was a total waste. They were just trying to have a base of his criminal history or something. Or And in
0: 2011, Georgia finally changed its rules of evidence. So if the trial were to take place today, a lot of that California stuff wouldn't be admissible anymore. Not that the rules mattered a whole lot. The judge let all sorts of stuff in. It seemed like everybody forgot they went to law school, including me, he joked at one point, after allowing improper questioning of a witness to go unchecked. The witnesses were as bad on the stand as they had been in the investigation. People like Zach Payne. He was brought from drug rehab to testify. He was brief and nonsensical, contradicting himself on the stand and talking about Jesus. Then there was Larisha Chapman. Despite the letter she wrote months earlier, prosecutors still called her to testify, apparently to humiliate her and paint her as a liar. When she swore she saw nothing that night, Edson was ruthless. He insisted that her statement about seeing Inman in the weeds was the true story, and that it was Chapman's fault that Donna Brown was dead. Well, Miss Chapman, he began, I think the fact of the matter is, if you had told somebody that night, Miss Brown might still be alive. Chapman was devastated when Inman was convicted, at least according to Dinah Ray, Inman's mother. She says after the trial, Chapman came up to her in tears and said she was sorry. Chapman wasn't the only one to recant on the stand. Marquetta Thomas, who had recently done a stint in jail, also said she had lied. But prosecutors brought in a procession of jailhouse informants to describe how she told them Inman had killed Donna Brown. Finally, the story told by Virginia Tatum, the newspaper carrier, Got even more preposterous. Now she insisted she was so close to Donna Brown's car as it sped past that she could have reached out and touched it. And she could see the gold chain around Inman's neck.
2: Inman's lawyers tried to show the jury that Inman was not a killer. It didn't go very well. They called Lee Grimes, the newspaper carrier who was with Tatum that night. He was a really important witness, but he wasn't particularly forceful. He just said he didn't see any of the things that Tatum claimed to have seen. District Attorney Bob Ellis defended Tatum's version of events. He told the jury that she remembered the details because she was a woman. Women are more nosy than men, he said, and they notice things like the jewelry a person is wearing. You know that book, Men Are From Mars, Women Are From Venus? He asked the jury. Men perceive things differently than women do. Throughout all this, King, the juror, took a lot of notes. He showed them to us when we went to visit. Very
1: interesting. Mm -hmm. But I've gotten the actual voting for where we, where we voted. This was the vote count, and apparently we took two votes. If mm-hmm. if my notes are what they are, they may not be complete. They may, you know.
2: Maybe you could uh, read those notes that you have and the times and what the counts were.
1: Okay, uh, on the voting for guilt or innocence, we had it was apparently it was nine for guilty, zero for not guilty, and three were undecided on the first on the first vote.
2: Zero for not guilty. King said he was skeptical of a lot of the witnesses, including Virginia Tatum, who he did not believe at all.
1: Looking back at my notes, I, I believe she had said something about she could see the cars from where she was. And anybody that's from Adele knows you can't see the pizza because the Dairy Queen's right there.
2: But remember the jailhouse snitch who claimed that Devonia Inman had confessed to him and then asked to have his sentence reduced? His name is Kawami
1: Spaulding, and he clinched it for King. From what I remember, the things that Kwame knew, he could have only known that as a fact. And, and, and that really weighed—that was the most—without Kwame, it wouldn't have been a case.
2: Both prosecutors and investigators swore that Spalding's story was legit. And, they told the jury, they knew that because he offered details of the crime that only the killer would know. Like that a forty four caliber revolver was used to murder Donna Brown. But that wasn't true. That detail, and others, had been printed in the newspaper more than once. Jurors like King never knew that. An hour later, the jury voted again and decided to convict Devania Inman. Inman's old girlfriend, Christy Lima, says it wasn't a fair trial.
7: But they wouldn't listen to nothing that I said. But um, Devanya's lawyer told me I did a good job because my story never changed they just kept going back and forth about me being a stripper it was never nothing about they kept just putting me down like she was a stripper, I got all these kids how can they believe anything that I say when I let men pay me for money to have sex with them and I was like wait a minute, what does that have to do with Devanya being on trial for murder, you know the trial was just a mess to me it wasn't even a trial it was just whatever the prosecutor said that's what it was that's it, that's all
2: While Bob Ellis insisted that being a woman helped Tatum to remember so clearly what happened the night Donna Brown died, he did not extend the same ability to Lima and her story that provided him an alibi. In fact, Ellis told the jury that Lima's recollection, which never once varied, couldn't be trusted because, he implied, she was a whore. Are you going to believe those folks, he asked the jury. But the biggest problem with Inman's trial probably wasn't the faulty evidence or the lying witnesses or even the prosecutors who discredited the legitimate ones. It's what wasn't said.
0: By the end of 2000, there had been three more brutal killings in Adel. Salish Patel, the man we talked about at the beginning of this episode, was beaten and stabbed to death after work. His killer has never been caught. And a beloved shopkeeper and his employee. They were bludgeoned to death in broad daylight. A man named Hercules Brown was quickly arrested and charged with those murders. Word had gone around town that Hercules Brown killed Donna Brown, too. Multiple people had told the GBI investigators that. And Inman's attorneys tried to talk about that during the trial. But the prosecutors wanted none of it. District Attorney Bob Ellis told the judge that there was no indication whatsoever that Hercules Brown had anything to do with this. One of Inman's defense lawyers told the judge that there was plenty of evidence implicating Hercules. For one, he was a closer at the Taco Bell. And he'd recently been arrested for two savage armed robbery murders. If Devania Inman's lesser crimes in California were enough to suggest a pattern of deadly violence, certainly Hercules Brown's similar transactions should have been relevant. And if there was nothing more concrete, it's because the GBI never bothered to compare Hercules' fingerprints to the ones lifted from the car. In fact, they completely ignored the warnings about Hercules altogether. All of this happened outside the presence of
2: the jury. The judge sided with Ellis. He said none of the evidence linking Hercules to the murder at the Taco Bell passed the smell test, much less any test for trustworthiness. So the jurors never heard it. But the judge, he was wrong. There was good reason to believe that Hercules was connected to Donna Brown's murder and to the others, including the unsolved murder of Salish Patel. To be clear, there is nothing definitive that connects Hercules Brown to Patel's murder. But there was talk that he might have been responsible, and that should have been worth looking into. In Murderville, it seems things are often overlooked. That has consequences. Like the wrong man, Devani Inman, being sent to prison for murder.
0: Next time on Murderville, we'll meet the Patel family. It took us a long time to track them down. When we did, they said some surprising things about the GBI. And told us about the unanswered questions the family is still living with. Murderville, Georgia is a production of The Intercept and Topic Studios. Elisa Roth is our producer. Ben Adair is our editor. Sound design, editing, and mixing by Brian Pugh. Production assistance from Isabel Robertson. Our executive producer is Lital Molad. For The Intercept, Roger Hodge is our editor and Betsy Reed is the editor in chief. I'm Liliana Segura. And I'm Jordan Smith. You can read our series and see photos at
2: theintercept.com slash murderville. You can also follow us on Twitter at Liliana Segura and at chronic underscore Jordan. Talk to you next week.
1: Jordan Smith and Liliana Segura are investigative reporters for The Intercept. Starting on December 20th, this series will be available for free across all podcasting platforms on Apple, on Google, anywhere you get your podcasts. If you can't wait, you can listen to the full Murderville podcast series now exclusively on Stitcher Premium. You can sign up for a 30 day free trial using promo code Murderville.
0: Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince.